Hello, and welcome to Episode 5 of the Practical Operations Podcast. Um, we are your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. And today we're going to talk a little bit about data storage engines. Last week we had some follow-up. We talked about programming languages. I don't have any follow-up specifically. You guys? We don't have any users uh, uh, complaining about our podcasts yet. Surely there's some good rants to be had. So our podcast can be found at operations.fm. And hopefully I'll have it in iTunes before this episode airs. So that will help discoverability and findability. If you like this show, please share it with your friends and let people know about it. We are looking for feedback and listeners and commentary. We we prefer not to just have the three of us talk in an echo chamber all the time. So we all have different strengths here when it comes to data storage. I've been dealing with Elasticsearch in excruciating detail for the last year or so. I know, Jared, you've done a lot of work with databases, Postgres, and others. Yeah, Postgres and MySQL primarily. And Jack, you've been doing a lot of flat file stuff with Whisper, and you've been looking at distributed options for that and other better ways to handle that kind of key value. Yeah, some key value stuff. Uh, Columnar databases. Um, how else do you store telemetry? Lots of telemetry uh, that has relatively reasonable durability. So I will let Jared get us started this week on relational databases. Sure. So first off, if you're using MySQL, stop. <laughs> <laughs> the only acceptable relational database is Postgres and SQLite uh, if you're doing like embedded stuff. Um, but no, I, I've, I've seen too many multi-master MySQL replications that have failed and then have to restore them. And that gets really painful when you guys start worrying about which which copy is the source of truth. And uh, Postgres is just much saner in terms of replication and in terms of data integrity and safety. Uh, MySQL does some really nasty things uh, with data types sometimes where you expect it to be one thing and it's actually stored as another. Um, I know there is some some there is some shining light on the MySQL side. I know that that. Uh, the uh what is it now called it's not called MySQL anymore. The new version. It's got some new changes, the especially forks from yes, our Google the forks. Uh, excuse me, the forks from our Oracle overlords. The Maria D B fork or one of the yes. others? Yes, one yeah, of those. The the Maria one. I know that that's they're making some some headway there. And also you've got uh one company in particular and hold on one second while I Google this. What's his name? Just did a a thing on their replication stuff. If it's the performance guys, it's Percona, and they're pretty sharp. Yes, per- Percona. That's it. So the Percona guys are really doing some really interesting things with MySQL. But um, yeah, but if for you me, use I, MySQL in production, you probably have a Percona account and contract with them. Most likely. I mean, if you're not using them when it comes to replication on the MySQL side and using their tool set, then you're probably hurting. Um, but Every I, company I, I've worked with that has done any any level of MySQL stuff has had a Percona account. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the ones I have used have not. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like I said, they've just used bare MySQL master-master replication that's built built in. And it works fine until there's like a, a 
a uh, network partition or some sort of hiccup, which, you know, never really happens. The network is always available. Well, I've also seen with multi-master MySQL setups, what happens with the only real sane way that I've seen to do it is you have the two masters and you have a VIP that points at one of them and only one of them. And all clients read and all clients write to the, to that VIP. And one of them actually holds the keep alive demon on it. So if there's a network partition, it says, well, I have keep alive. I'm alive. I can still accept rights. And the other one loses that ability and basically stone this itself and you avoid the really nasty part of a network partition. It's still not it's still not pretty to, to put it all back together at the end, but it's it's less awful. It's not quite so data losing awful. So how does Postgres make all this better and make your lives not horrible? Well, for me, it's streaming replication, uh, which is baked in. Uh, and what's great is you can also do both streaming replication along with write ahead log shipping. Uh, since actually underneath the covers, they're essentially the same. Even the streaming essentially uses the write-ahead log uh, over TCP or uh, over, the, over the network socket instead of through fi flat files. And so uh, you can set up both, and they both work. Um, basically, uh, Postgres will essentially cycle through. It'll do streaming one time, write-ahead log a second time. And uh, it's a great way to guarantee consistency for a a master slave setup or a, an end into n plus one setup for master to number of slaves. Uh, when you start getting into m different scenarios, you've got some nice uh, third party things like uh, PG pool, which will allow you to pull uh, or basically be middleware for your client connections to pull connections. So that it can do some nice things where like, uh, if you execute a select statement, you can do it across multiple slaves instead of it being only on the on the master. Um, you also have things like Saloni uh, that also help you do multi-master um, and a few others that are up and coming that are a little better. Um, and also Postgres just handles data better. Um, it has more data types, does some nice things with JSON where you can actually store actual JSON objects or almost treat Postgres like a NoSQL database, if that's something you care about. Um, so it's it's just really flexible, and uh, I like to think of it as the open source Oracle. It's the 20% of Oracle that 80% of people need. Versus MySQL is 5% of Oracle that 50% of people need. So uh, for me, you know, back in the before time, uh, I always preferred... Uh, Postgres as a database, but everybody I ever knew and watched and every open source application I deployed, of course, only worked with uh, MySQL. And the this was years ago when MySQL wasn't quite ACID compliant, Postgres was, but MySQL was was significantly faster. And I think that did a lot to, to pull people over uh, to the MySQL world. And it's what we're still sort of dealing with today. I still see MySQL as a much more popular database. Does that jive with with what you know, Jared? Yeah, unfortunately, and 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 I think it's almost like what we're seeing now with the with the MongoDB culture. It's just that a lot of developers, it was easy to get started with because I know pre, especially pre nine days, 
Postgres was definitely more difficult to get going, to get set up. It, it was different. You had these things, uh, uh, schemas on top of a few other things. It just was different from MySQL. And it's almost like with MongoDB. MongoDB was just, oh, here, you just you just start it up and you just start going. There is nothing else you need to worry about. All the early days in, Mon- in the early MongoDB days, they were a lot of defaults were very insane and dangerous. So I, I really see a parallel there where MySQL was just so easy for developers to get get their hands on and get started with, whereas Postgres, uh, pre, like I said, especially pre-nine days, was a little more difficult to get started with. Although I think Postgres has done a great, phenomenal job, as well as a couple other companies. Heroku, uh, they've actually started distributing for the Mac app uh, a PostgreSQL.app where you just download a single binary for the Mac and it has Postgres, the latest version of Postgres, a lot of the extensions like um, PostGIS for uh, GIS work and a lot of the other popular extensions you may find in production already there, already rolled up. So it's real easy to get going. And Postgres themselves has done a great job packaging up for every popular data or every popular OS out there. Um, so I, I really think in the early days, MySQL was the easier to get started. But nowadays, I think I'm seeing a lot of a turn where a lot of people are going towards Postgres. Well, also, Jared, I know from from Inside Baseball that you've done some reasonably large scale work with with Postgres. Yeah, we uh, we have some sizable databases. <laughs> and... For a long time, MySQL shipped out of the box with configurations that were suitable for a single socket, dual core, like two gig of RAM Linux box. And so all the memory buffers were very conservative and all the other things were very conservative because they were trying to make sure they targeted, you know, basically 2003 and, you know, that generation of hardware. Whereas having better defaults that scale better is now the norm as far as I can tell. They they've they finally pulled their head out and they're doing something a little little less awful. But every time I hear people talking about large databases that are stable and aren't a constant source of problem, it seems that people are talking about Postgres or unfortunately Oracle, because that is one of the things Oracle does do. Yeah, and and, and I think that the, and that's partly also because of there's a lot of tooling around with Postgres and like you you were mentioning about the defaults, uh, Postgres uh, just comes with a lot of good sane defaults and a lot of parameters that you can change uh, to tune and set things better. Um, we're actually dealing right now with some hot cold, hot and cold cache issues, uh, and there's just some some really awesome ways to kind of tune some things. Uh, I really love uh, the explain uh, the 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 explain function with Postgres, where you can actually have it r- tell you why it's doing what it's doing with a query, so that you can help try to analyze where the problem is happening inside of your query, or should you maybe try to put more of your database in memory, or do you need faster disk? It's just there's a lot more information there that Postgres provides out of the box to help you make a more performant database. I see you're doing large selects. Perhaps you need a primary key. Sorry. I've seen some people do very, very dumb things with databases in the past. Or maybe you need an index. <laughs> so, Jared, here's the $60 million question. 
Um, how is sharding in Postgres different from MySQL? Oh man, that's actually something we have not done yet. We're we're actually getting ready to start looking at sharding, uh, just because we're starting to hit some some limits on our physical boxes. Um, so that's something I haven't had to deal with just yet. Although I know that, uh, again, that is something that can be front ended with something like uh, PG Pool, uh, some of this middleware that you're that is almost like a proxy. Those things can have an understanding of where they route the requests to. Uh, so that definitely helps out. I, th- I, I think over my SQL, though, to be honest, I haven't sharded with my SQL either. So, my experience with my SQL sharding is you set up multiple MySQL instances and you tell the application where to write things to. Yep, that's you, basically it. You don't treat MySQL as a large data store that has shards in it. You teach your application about the shards, and you go from there. Yeah, and see, so you have things like PG Pool or PG Bouncer that will sit there and help you uh, with with the with the sharding. There's an O'Reilly book that I read ten years ago. I I need to find the title of it so I can like link it properly in the show notes. But it talked about all the basic sanity of doing database work, and I still meet people who call themselves DBAs who don't have a have the basics from the first like three chapters of that book. And it talks about setting up indexes. It talks about how primary keys works. It talks about, you know, the acid semantics. It talks about all of the basic things. And then it goes into like first normal form and second normal form. And it talks about how the the basic theory of databases works. And I think most folks in our space could really do with reading the 60 pages of text that talks about how databases work on a very base level, because most people are missing that that kind of in that kind of context that the introduction of this is why we do things the way we do them. This is how these things work. So if I can dig that up, I will, I'll put a link in because I still I've always fall been back frustrated with folks that can't design a database schema. That's at least uh first normal or better because it's not hard, but it, it gives you so much flexibility and saves you so much disk space. And memory and everything else. And everything else. Indexes are your friends. So when you move out of relational databases, there's a couple of other options for document storage. And I've been doing a lot of work with Elasticsearch recently, mostly within the Elk stack, but also a little bit outside of that. And I've gotten very intimately familiar with a lot of the inner workings of how Elasticsearch handles sharding and replication and memory use and CPU and network and all of that mess. And I find it to be a fascinating system that is very well designed for the most part with a couple of unfortunate exceptions, um, some of those being the JVM and garbage collection. I've seen, let's see here, 500 terabytes I've seen 150 billion documents in a live indexed sharded Elasticsearch instance that is queryable by developers and it's it provides the data and it provides it quickly and accurately and once you get the filtering syntax worked out and the query syntax worked out it's act, it's very very powerful and it helps in many many ways with things. So what kind of data is Elasticsearch good for? 
you know, coming from from a relational world or a key value store world, uh, what am I using Elasticsearch for? So if you think of a relational database as, if you, if you map it into an application that's like objects and persistence and those kinds of things, and relationships between classes in an application, you, Elasticsearch is basically the back end of a search engine. It is a large document store. So you feed it data and you tell it what form the data is in. You say, okay, these are the fields I'm looking for. And in this field, I have this, this is a, this is a float. This is a string. This is a string you shouldn't index. This is a string you should tokenize and take apart so we can do more varied searching on it later. And then let's store all of those documents as efficiently as, as possible and use an inverted index so we can very quickly discover where a term you're looking for is in the documents or in the group of documents in question. So it gives you an incredible, it gives you findability at speed, which is not the design of a relational database at all. You don't get to do the complex joins that you do in data, in relational databases, but Lester has a concept of aggregations where you can do fairly complex chaining operations to extract data sets and transform data and kind of massage it and get it into the form you need. But its primary use case is a data storage and search engine. So if you say, okay, I'm looking for log data or I'm looking for recipes or I'm building the next Google or I'm, I'm trying to get a, a large corpus of similar kinds of data together. Um, recipes are actually would be, would be a great example because you're looking at similar fields, similar values. You know, you have ingredients, you have instructions, you have cook times, you have authors, you have bylines, you have those pieces. And so you can very rapidly dig in, pull out, find related pieces and do searching and aggregation. The Elastic company, the company that provides commercial support for Elasticsearch has a stack called Elk, which is Elasticsearch, Logstash and Kibana, which they use and a lot of people use, we use it to, you ship logs out of your systems or your applications with Logstash, you dump them into Elasticsearch where you, where you index them and then use Kibana as a web interface to query said data. And it's powerful and it's about 10,000% cheaper than, than Splunk is. So. Open source for the win. Splunk does do better with unstructured data. If you don't know what's in your data before you have it, before you're, you're digging through it, you say, okay, I'm just gonna import all these logs and I don't have time to figure out what it is or what I have in there. And at search time, I want to start building the pattern match and trying to figure out what's going on. Splunk does a much better job of that than Elastic, than Elk does. It's it's designed for that kind of arbitrary query. But Splunk also charges the licenses per data volume per day indexed, and it isn't cheap. So, it's good software though. It's powerful. It does its job very well. Um, I was at a large university, so we had educational pricing and the prices still made everybody kind of panic. Um, not at liberty to discuss what commercial pricing is, unfortunately, but it is, it is high. And I've uh, also been seeing some uh, adjustments in tuning one can do to Elasticsearch to store uh, time series data as well. That seems to be a hot topic about the internet. Yeah, because... Because of the data model for Elasticsearch, you have indexes that are based on whatever parameter you, you like, but frequently people do it based on date and time. So it lets you roll off data at the end of a time series database 
granularly. You can say, I want to drop anything older than 90 days for this index, anything older than 120 days for this index, anything older than five years for this other index or however it is. And you do it live, you do it at runtime. It's a REST API, you hit it and the cluster handles it and it handles it usually correctly. Um, I've had some issues with, as you scale Elasticsearch, you're, you're basically scaling the JVM and in their infinite wisdom, the folks who wrote Elasticsearch decided to write their own cluster protocol that is called Zendisco instead of using Paxos or Raft or one of the many other distributed cluster consensus algorithms. One and of the ones you, that are scientifically and mathematically proven. Yeah. And if you have a very large data set and you're dealing with caches in and off the heap and you're also using file system caches because Elasticsearch can do that now, which is awesome because it, it helps relieve pressure on the heap. Well, the larger your heap gets, the more expensive garbage collection gets. And until, until Java 8, basically, I would at times see three, four, five-minute garbage collections. And unfortunately, Elasticsearch has a hard-coded 90-second timer. And if you if you don't communicate in 90 seconds, the cluster master decides that you don't exist anymore and kicks you out, and the data node cannot rejoin until it gets restarted, which means that a long enough garbage collection event due to bad searches can down enough nodes that you can't index documents anymore because the shards of the index you're indexing into are split across nodes that are no longer there, and you've lost primaries and replicas. And then everybody else is handling the load and everybody else very quickly goes into out-of-memory positions and either garbage collects until death or actually just ooms and game over. Now it's time to turn everything off to clear all the memory states and boot the whole cluster back up. Is that an Elasticsearch designism or is that Java being Java? Yes. Um, <laughs> the the Jepson distributed systems testing guy Kyle Kingsbury, I think, um, has done two articles on Elasticsearch, and his biggest problem with their their piece is their their cluster consensus algorithm not being weapons grade. It's sort of a we wrote it, we're going to keep on using it because we like it, and guys, you really you really should find something better because that's kind cluster of cluster consensus algorithms are hard. They really are. They're Elasticsearch isn't the only company that's gotten it wrong or not quite correct. I mean, look at all the things that, that he's published in the, in the Jepson series of papers. It's, it's incredibly long, and people have done it incredibly badly. We should at, make sure to link those. Yes. I don't think there's actually one that has successfully like passed with flying colors, right? I mean, everybody has at least some problems, if not a whole host of problems. Some he's less abusive to. Um, I know that Kafka, at the end of it, he said, yeah, there, there's some there's some conditions where you can lose messages, but the design document explicitly states why this happens. And they're using Zookeeper, which is battle-tested and actually pretty good. And I was like, wow, he's, he said something nice about somebody. That's, that's kind of awesome. <laughs> His biggest problem with Elasticsearch, apart from the losing data and the split brain pieces was all of their support documents for six months, a year, basically denied that they had any data consistency problems. And he said, no, I, I can repeatedly prove to you that I can cause your, your cluster to go split brain. And then when the masters reconverge, 
whoever's whoever loses that just drops all their documents. And that's horrible. It's called failing safe, right? Failing web scale. <laughs> yes, practical operations brands this web scale. And there's a MongoDB joke in there somewhere, but I'm too lazy yes, to find it. Yes, there is. And talking about time series databases with Elasticsearch makes me think about tools that are better suited to time series database or time series work. And Jack, I know you've been doing a lot recently with with that problem space. Sort of. I've been doing a lot of study for how to scale my own time series needs, as I'm currently using uh, Graphite and their ever-famous Whisper backend. And at this point, my my biggest problem is that the Whisper backend allocates a fixed chunk of data. If and it doesn't matter if you're storing one data point or 10,000, it takes up the same amount of space on disk. And for most of my most of my metrics, the actual metric isn't alive longer uh, or anywhere near as long as the time period we wish to keep data retained. So I've been looking at I've been looking at uh, uh, graphite series. Um, I've been looking at using a RIAC uh, key value backend for Graphite. Um, looked at InfluxDB. Uh, a couple other uh, options. There's some Cassandra-based uh, solutions as well. Is that the Cyanite one? Yes, that's one of them. Uh, DB is another. There are several uh, backends and, and solutions that are Cassandra-based. Okay. Cassandra seems... Seems to be a reasonably well-respected database, and I don't have the familiarity with it um, that I that I would like to have. But most of my research uh, indicates that really, no matter what I do, what uh, distributed backend data store I use, there are going to be scaling problems. There's going to be issues with how much metadata the cluster is exchanging to keep all the keys in sync as I write keys at, you know, a couple hundred thousand uh, keys per second. Um, so for me, I, I sort of took a step back from the operation, from the, from the whole problem. And the whole process of keep it simple, stupid, um, sort of rang true for me. A lot of, a lot of our tendency nowadays for uh, distributed and reliable storage is if Amazon S3 doesn't work, uh, using some sort of distributed, magical, sharded database. And that, of course, brings in uh, consensus algorithms and making sure that you've done your consensus algorithm correctly, uh, order of operations, how ACID compliant, the buzzwords go on. Well, the other problem with and all really that for times is you can have the best cons consensus algorithm in the world, but if you decide to set up your cluster in L.A. and New York... You can't keep your latency is going to kill you. It's going to kill any kind of performance you have. Yep. And for me, it's it came down to the fact that time series data is a really unique problem. Most of the database solutions out there are more general purpose tools and are more built to serve 
a wider spectrum of problems and where time series is usually pretty narrow in its problem scope. Um, really, time series data is order independent. It doesn't matter the order that you submit events. It doesn't matter the order that queries are answered in as long as all the data gets from your backend storage to your graphs, as long as all the data gets from your uh, client machines into backend storage. Um, and that was sort of key for me and what I'm trying to, to do with Graphite's backend. But I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I've started down the path of writing my own columnar store um, for Graphite uh, that uses a wall, um, a write-ahead log, to make sure writes are consistent. Um, in order to get some better performance out of Graphite and a much more efficient back-end. But um, you know what they say about creating things. So I'm still in the, will this idea actually work? I'm hoping that without uh, fixed sizes of databases and with uh, some sort of consistency around making sure uh, data gets written to disk, I'll be able to satisfy the the requirements I have for data durability and data longevity, which are not always people's requirements with time series data either. So there's a good predicate. So it sounds like you're contemplating building the ultimate flat file, distributed flat file database for time series. I'm not values. sure distributed is really a good description. Sorry, federated. <laughs> federated, there we go. That was the word I was looking for. I have a lot of interest in this, in the outcome of this set of problems and solutions. And at one point I was thinking about encouraging you to look at Elasticsearch as a TSDB, but I don't think it meets the efficiency goals. And I don't think for, at a cost perspective, it'll scale to where it needs to be to make sense. So I am I am keenly watching your space and if oh dear. Well, if, if there's if I have the ability to actually help to do other things than just talk to you about it and give you theory ideas, but actually to to either write code or do test cases or whatever. Well, my I guess my sort of initial theory is not using fixed-sized databases if I get reasonable efficiency um, that I can uh, actually do real replication and still be somewhere within reasonable cost budget for my storage hardware. And that's the nasty side of all of this is that it costs money to have all storage. of these up. And RAM. IOPS. That's one thing that, that my solution really doesn't address is IOPS. Um, and I know one of the criticisms about uh, Graphite series data format has been uh, that it doesn't do anything to address IOPS on disk. And for time series database, uh, where you want fast access, um, both read and write, that actually is, is a difficult problem. But if you're doing a, a columnar database, you can do streaming reads instead of doing seeks for a lot of things. Instead of doing random, <clears throat> excuse me, you can do a lot of um, 
streaming reads instead of random reads to pick up data, which decreases your need for strictly, it decreases the IOPS needs itself to a point where it may be reasonable to, to actually scale out without going crazy on the SSD cost. As long as one can uh, batch time series data together, um, we're all familiar with caching algorithms, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, the the lovely thing about columnar data is as long as you can batch data together or know how much data you want to read, it's one read operation. You calculate where you need to be in the file, you read the data, and hand it off. Kafka has a lot of similar constructs in it for when you have a consumer catching up on a partition. Um, even when it's pulling off of a bunch of slow um, SATA disks, not even SAS, it, it, the performance penalty is 15% off of coming out of memory because they spent a lot of time very carefully looking at how to do the streaming read. It's an append-only file system, or it's an append-only um, event log. So it's very easy to say, I know you're at marker X. I know that between marker X and Y is X amount of data. I'm giving it to you in chunks of this size so I can just start streaming read. I don't have to go seek around and try to find this stuff. I was very impressed when I was doing recovery testing with that for, for those specific reasons. Yeah, and some of my goals are to be append mostly. I know I won't be able to limit my use cases to append only, but I think a large majority of my operations will be append only. The uh, one thing that I want to look into, and that it's an interesting challenge with columnar data, is compression. Uh, it's easy to compress the data, but once I do, uh, you can't just append to it anymore. Um, nor can you just randomly seek to the data that you want to read either. You could use a lossy compression algorithm. <laughs> My employer would appreciate that. My favorite is Remark. It's often shortened to RM. Oh, that's my favorite one, yes. <laughs> I get amazing speed at compression. <laughs> Decompression's a bit of a problem, but... Well, I keep telling everybody at, at work that I'm going to invent the, the black hole storage device. Infinite storage. Minimal cost. Salesman is Mr. Dave Null, is that right? Yes, uh, you knew my buddy Dave. We should really get him on this podcast. So, that wraps it up for Episode 5 of the Practical Operations Podcasts. We hope to see you next week. And we're your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Have fun. And Merry Christmas.